Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and my guest today is John Kostakopoulos. John was one of the first people to participate in a clinical psilocybin study in the U.S. He was an early participant in New York University's initial study for psilocybin for the treatment of alcoholism. John went through psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy over the course of many weeks for the study, which included three separate days of psilocybin administration. John and I talked about his battle with alcoholism leading up to the study, how he was recruited to the study, and what his psilocybin experiences during the study were like. John also shared a lot about his experiences after the study, how it's impacted his alcohol intake and his life generally, and he shared what he's been doing since his psilocybin experiences, including founding Apollo Pact, a nonprofit working to advance research into the therapeutic potential of psilocybin. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can support the podcast directly on Patreon, and you can also subscribe to the video podcast on YouTube. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. With that, here's my conversation with John Kostakopoulos. John Kostakopoulos, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself. So who are you? Where do you live? What do you do for a living? And why are we, why are we talking today? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm a 31 year old, uh, guy living in New York city, born and raised in New York. And I was the first study participant at an NYU Langone clinical trial using psilocybin to treat alcohol use disorder. And uh, after that successful experience, um, I launched a nonprofit to help advance this same research that I was lucky enough to be a part of. So you've been there your whole life. What were you doing leading up to the study before you started the nonprofit? What did you do for a living? Sure. I was a news anchor for a financial news company, and I loved it. It was my dream job. Uh, and I had tried to stop drinking for a while, um, even during my work and, and all of that, and uh, to no avail. Um, and that's how difficult it is, right? You, you really want to do something, but you can't stop. Um, so I was a news anchor at the time, and I heard about this clinical trial. The doctors at NYU Langone were getting ready to launch. Um, and I was lucky enough to get introduced to those doctors. Hmm. So before we dig into the study itself and, and what that was like and what happened after that, what, you know, how long had you been drinking excessively? Can you, can you unpack for everyone a little bit about your history there and, and what maybe caused you to drink? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had a great childhood, no trauma, um, nothing really. I just, I started drinking. My friends and I experimented with alcohol at an early age at around, I don't know, maybe around 13. Um, and 
a lot of us like that feeling that we got from, from drinking alcohol. And I never knew how to drink responsibly or drink like an adult. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, not really like an adult because there are plenty of adults that I know too that, that don't drink responsibly, but I never learned how to drink just to enjoy it with dinner, just to enjoy a beer at a ball game. Um, I always drank to get drunk, to, to feel something um, and or to numb something, which was strange because there wasn't any trauma to numb. I just liked that feeling to start. And alcoholism is a progressive disease. Mm-hmm. So you need more and more to, to you build up a tolerance. And I was up to drinking. I could drink a handle of, of liquor in a sitting. Um, I mean, like a, a whole day I'd be drinking when I woke up and, and I'd finish that. So 20, 30 drinks, no problem. Um, and, and it became a problem for me that I wasn't happy when I wasn't drinking and I wasn't happy when I was drinking. And those were the only two worlds that I knew. So, you know, if there was any trauma, it was just me being miserable of, I I knew I needed to stop drinking. um, But it was just so difficult that I could not stop. Mm -hmm. So was this like a progressive ramp since you were a teenager or was there anything that changed as you got older at some point? You know, it, it started progressing probably end of high school and obviously right beginning in college. And, and I went right in, uh, in the college scene because everyone was, was, you know, you'd think everyone was an alcoholic, at least the people that I, I was hanging out with. Um, and so that's where it really picked up. And then I, I, I mean, my first AA meeting was at 16. So I knew for a long time wow. that I didn't have a normal relationship with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, I never got into any legal troubles, any you know, any physical injuries, any, you know, I never, I didn't burn any bridges or anything. So my rock bottom was pretty good. Um, I, I came out unscathed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very lucky to do that. And, um, but I just knew, you know, I, I couldn't, this wasn't sustainable. I could mm-hmm. not keep drinking the way I was drinking and have a life that I wanted to have, have a career I wanted to have, have a family I wanted to have. So I had to choose one or the other. So you, you actually went through AA at least once. What is, what is that experience like? Like what actually happens when you go through an AA program? You know, AA is great. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of support there and it's free, right? So anyone can show up any, you know, you don't have to qualify for anything. They, they do have men's meetings and women's meetings sometimes, mm-hmm. which I think is good too. Um, and it's, it's a great support system. Um, and it's worked for some of my friends, but unfortunately, like myself, it hasn't worked for the vast majority of, of people I know that, that have gone in and out of those rooms. Um, and AA, you know, I, I mean, I've been in and out of there 
for almost a decade. I was 25 when I did the clinical trial. So from 16, basically to 25, I was in and out of AA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it worked when I was going to the meetings, but then, uh, you know, I'd have a bad day or I'd, I wouldn't get that instant gratification and say, Hey, I, I haven't been drinking for a few weeks or I haven't been drinking for a month, which is an eternity for, for an alcoholic. I mean, these guys are counting days, right? Mm-hmm. You're literally counting days, like an escape from Alcatraz or something. <laughs> and that's, that's how, I mean, it's, it's really, you gotta be mentally tough for it. Um, and so it's a great support system for that, but a lot of people like myself, um, you know, I got sick of it. I had a bad day. I said, you know, what? nothing good is really happening. My life is, you know, I'm, I'm not having fun with my friends. I didn't get a promotion I wanted. Um, and, and you just give up and you go back to drinking and then that's not fun. That's, that's even worse. It exacerbates everything. And then you go back, you know, to AA or whatever kind of treatment you're looking to do. And when, you know, when you are in the throes of this, let's say that, you know, you've, you've quit drinking for a number of days, one day goes by, two days go by. What, what's the psychology of it there? So when you wake up in the morning on, you know, one or two or three days into being sober, what is going through your head? Is it, are you feeling a lot of anxiety? Are you thinking about drinking all the time? So I'd have anxiety when I was drinking. Hmm. Um, when I wasn't drinking, I wouldn't have too much anxiety uh, because I had contrived full control, or, or at least I thought. Um, I had control over my actions, but, you know, that uh, it, uh, not really your emotions, if that makes sense. So I'm always thinking, right? Mentally, I'm, I'm always thinking either as, you know, while I'm drinking, okay, where's my next drink coming from? But while I'm sober, what am I going to do to, to keep myself distracted? So Mm -hmm. you're constantly thinking about it and it is a grind. It is, you know, it's fatiguing and, Mm -hmm. and you really need a lot of mental endurance to, to go through this. And were there any things that were giving you that endurance? Were you doing exercise or anything that was helping? Yeah, I would. Um, I I started a softball team that I I played with and managed, and that was a bunch of fun too. And and that would keep me busy. So I would find things to keep me busy and things that other people would have to rely on me for. So, you know, organized sports was great for me because I would have to you know, I'd have to organize everyone every week and say, Hey, we're playing these guys who, who's coming here. And, um, that was great. I, I, I had to pick up a lot of extracurricular activities because from nine to five, after you're done, I mean, you're just sitting around thinking about drinking. Everyone's going out for a drink after work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want to go to the bar and, and even when, when I would go to the bar, and I wasn't drinking, or even if I was drinking at that time, I would rarely, rarely drink in front of my coworkers and colleagues. Um, so after they would 
go out and it would be 10 o'clock or something. I'd leave the bar and go to a bar next door, go to a bar by me or go to the liquor store and pick something up. And I would drink because I, I just wanted to drink. And, you know, I, I got to the point where I loved drinking alone because I didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, any repercussions mm-hmm. from, from any social repercussions that, that may or may not have happened. Um, gotcha. So it sort of sounds like um, you were able to manage your drinking fairly well, but when you did actually have a drink, it, it was not just one drink. You, you had to keep going and, and you were doing that by yourself because you didn't want your colleagues or anyone else seeing that. Correct. Yeah. And so was it typically, when were you drinking? Was this the type of, type of thing where you would drink at night after other people were at the bar, like you just described, or would you, would you drink during the, the work week during the day? Yeah. Sometimes I would drink, uh, in the morning if my hangovers were so bad, mm-hmm. but I rarely drank during the week because I drank so much in a sitting or in a night that I, I needed a day or two to recover mm-hmm. and dry out. Um, I would have, you know, I'd have the physical hangover and sometimes I'd have what I call the moral hangover. Mm-hmm. And that's that anxiety of, what did I do last night? Because chances are I blacked out and, you know, did anything bad happen? And 99% of the time, nothing bad happened, but I would, I would leave the worst up to my imagination and Mm -hmm. care for the worst and hope for the best. I see. So, so this wasn't a daily thing. You were going in spurts, but they were, they were really big spurts. Yeah, it was, it was binge drinking. I would, I would pick my battles. So I'd look for those three day weekends coming up right? Like Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I'd, I'd go out that Friday and go through maybe Saturday and then leave Sunday and Monday to, to recover. So how old were you when you heard about the NYU study? 25. 25. Um, I, I heard about it and it was total luck. I got, I mean, extraordinary uh, luck on, on my end. My mom had, she had a, a longtime doctor that she had just switched. And this brand new doctor of hers, uh, I guess, you know, my mom confided in her about my issues. And God bless her, that doctor, Lisa Durso, she, uh, you know, thought about it and kept, kept her ear to the ground and saw a study that they were getting ready to, to screen patients for. Um, and I think a, in a medical journal. And so she called my mom late, you know, the next week or whenever she saw it and, uh, and told her about this. And then I, I looked into it and, uh, I, I, I was very skeptical and I had never, I was always afraid of psychedelics. So I never touched psychedelics and, I, but I was so desperate at the time and I had tried everything else. I really exhausted all those other options. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that those were dead ends for me. Um, so I had nothing to lose. So you mentioned being scared of psychedelics. So I assume that means you had not tried any and why, why were you scared of them? What was your uh, mental, mental uh, image of psychedelics prior to learning about that study? Yeah. Um, 
what I learned a lot of it to be what I now know is propaganda. So I thought, I thought I would go crazy. I thought there was a chance that I would go crazy. I thought there was a chance my personality would permanently change or I would turn into a vegetable. Um, and, you know, I, I actually knew a kid uh, that in high school, he had, he had unfortunately passed away. And rumor had it was that he walked out of his window um, after eating magic mushroom. So that, I mean, and I heard that at, if I'm 17, 18, and I hear that, I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I saw a lot of my friends doing it recreationally, mm-hmm. specifically mushrooms or, you know, any other site, maybe LSD, and they, they loved it. They had a great time, but there was a tiny, you know, chance of having a bad experience. And that was enough for me to, to never touch the stuff. Mm-hmm. So you really, you had an aversion to psychedelics. You probably didn't know that much about them in terms of their chemistry or their biology. And then you hear about the psilocybin study. So what was your initial reaction? Walk us to like the, the initial reaction and then how you actually went about applying to participate. Yeah. Um, initial reaction. I was a little nervous, but also excited because I knew that the doctors were facing an uphill battle, right? It's a schedule one drug. The stigma is there, mm-hmm. you know, and those are the main two ones. Uh, and I, but at the same time, I thought it was pretty cool. I'm like, this is, you know, I can be one of the first people to do this and get sober from it. And I, you know, I said, why not? This is, this is pretty exciting to me. Um, and so I had, I had talked to the doctors, aired my concerns about what I've mentioned earlier about going crazy, personality changing any negative side effects. They said, no, no negative side effect that from any of our studies or any studies that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and I asked, okay, well, am I going to, cause I, I had a lot of friends that stopped drinking, but they smoke pot every day and they're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, high 24 seven or whenever they're awake. Um, and I didn't want to live that way. So I asked, am I going to start doing mushrooms? And they said, well, it's not addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, can you overdose? They said, no, 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 no overdoses from, from psilocybin. So, and th- those are, you know, real concerns, uh, overdosing and if it's an addictive substance mm-hmm. and no to both of them. So what was, um, so did they have to do, how, how did they like actually screen you and decide that you qualified for the study? So they checked for the, the two main ones, I believe, were definitely schizophrenia mm-hmm. um, and I think bipolar disorder as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is ironic because I've, I've had people come up to me saying that they, they have, uh, they're bipolar and after doing mushrooms or uh, LSD, uh, 
they haven't had a manic episode or their manic, manic episodes are now more manageable or their depression is more manageable. So that's ironic. But I think with the, these FDA clinical trials, especially with the schedule one drug, mm-hmm. you know, these, these researchers are under the microscope of, yeah. of the federal government. So they don't want to take any chances um, or, or have any negative outcomes for any of the patients. So they want you as healthy as you can be. Um, and so once they saw that physically and mentally, they said, uh, you know, I had to fill out some questionnaires. They, they'd asked me a bunch of questions. I mean, hours and hours of questions. Um, it was extensive. And, but, but once I got in, we, we started right away and, uh, off to the races. So you had no family history of schizophrenia or major mental illness, I forgot to ask you, do, do you have a family history of alcoholism or was no. this specific to you? Okay. No, that's specific to me. And, and the doctors um, thought that it was because I had started at such a young age. Mm-hmm. So when you start at that young of an age, your chances of becoming an alcoholic or developing an addiction go up exponentially. Mm-hmm. And so you get into the study and you start right away how many doses do you end up taking? And is this in the context of therapy sessions or is it just the psilocybin dose? Great question. Um, so I took three doses altogether throughout the whole study, separate mm-hmm. occasion. Um, and there's no there, unlike MDMA therapy or MDMA assisted therapy, um, you don't, there's no psychotherapy during your psilocybin session. Mm-hmm. So the psychotherapy is before and after the session. And, but during the session, they give you a pill, um, synthetic psilocybin and, and it's none of the microdosing stuff. This is, they call this a heroic dose. They want you to have a real, you know, transformation, yeah, a real transformation. Yeah. Um, do you remember and the dose? Do you, do you know what the first dose was like in milligrams? 25. I, th- I they might've started me out with 20 milligrams. And then I think the second and third were 25 milligrams. Okay. Yeah. So that, that is a large dose. So yeah. before we actually get to that, so when you're doing the therapy, just describe for, for people, is this like normal talk therapy? How many sessions were you having prior to the first dose of psilocybin? You know, it was probably, they're, they're mainly weekly. So I'd, I'd show up once a week, like your standard psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably had maybe around five sessions before going into the psilocybin session itself. Um, and it was normal, you know, talk therapy. It wasn't anything different. It wasn't. It, it was, and that's why they, they refer to this as psilocybin assisted mm-hmm. therapy. So it's, it's the therapy that's doing it right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, but the psilocybin helps get you to that point. And what a lot of patients say is after their psilocybin experience, they feel like it's been decades of, of therapy condensed in one afternoon. And I'd mm-hmm. agree with that. So 
let's let's walk people through the first psilocybin dose. So can you describe the setting that they have you in? They've obviously they've obviously prepped you for this. You've had multiple therapy sessions. They've presumably, you know, given you a lot of information about what you might expect and how to deal with it. But what is what is going through your mind and what are you expecting when you get into the room on that first day? You know, I was hopeful that first day. I was I was very nervous. I was nervous with the fact that I thought I'd be watching a 3D movie that I could not differentiate reality from the hallucination. Mm -hmm. And that was frightening to me. And that that did not happen at all, um, by the way. So I thought, you know, I'd see scary stuff pop up and, and try to eat me or, you know, crazy stuff. But none of that happened. Um, I was, I was nervous, but also excited thinking that. And I, so the doctors told me, they said, you can't drink or do drugs 11 days up to the, for the psilocybin session. Mm-hmm. We need you, you know, no drugs in your system and we need you mentally prepared for this. Um, so I, even though I didn't really want to drink that night, I counted backwards in the calendar and plotted, you know, when, when that exact day was for my last drink. And I didn't, I drank alone. I didn't spend it with anyone. I wanted to have, you know, go out with the bang and it was great. I mean, it was a great night. Um, I had a lot of fun with myself just drinking and, and I was hopeful going into that session. I was like, all right, I left everything out on the field. I drank for, you know, 10 lifetimes. I can hang it up and, and be fine. And um, so I went into the session and they, you know, screened me. They drug test you, make sure everything's fine. They ask you if you, and you can, you can back out anytime. Mm-hmm. The doctors say you do, you do not need to take the psilocybin if you don't, don't want to. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Um, and that, that was nice that you always have that option. And um, so you walk in, I walked in, it was a little blue pill and you have to state your intention, what you want to fix. And even though I was there for drinking, I didn't focus on the drinking. I said, I just want to find an inner peace mm-hmm. because once I have an inner peace, I think I don't need a drink, um, which ended up being correct. So I, I said that I took the pill and then the, the room itself, they wanted to make it comfortable. So they made it look like a living room and not like a hospital, even though we're in a hospital, we're in Bellevue hospital and it's, um, you know, you walk into the room itself and they have a couch kind of like my setup here, like a living room, a couch. They have a couple of chairs for the doctors. They have a few, you know, tables and nightstands with lamps. And uh, so they gave me the pill. They gave me some eye shades and some headphones. And I put the eye shades on. I put the headphones on. And the music was mainly classical and some, you know, indigenous tribal music as well with some windpipes and mainly mainly music without words as to not, you know, uh, 
I think that would have it because the music, at least for me, it, it influenced my psychedelic sessions. But I think if it were to have words, it would have really directed the session um, in, in a way that might not have been beneficial. So they use, you know, music without words and um, and you're just there for basically the whole day. <laughs> what time do you start? I think we started around 8 a.m. maybe. Um, so you go in there, you have to do the drug test. And I think you answer, uh, you fill out like a pamphlet, a questionnaire. Um, and, and then you, you take the psilocybin and, you know, it takes about 30, 45 minutes to kick in. And then a couple hours into it, it's, really at its peak and it's pretty strong and that's probably for another couple of hours and then you kind of plateau down um did you have an empty stomach or or did you eat before going to the hospital you know i had an empty stomach i think because i mm-hmm. every time i wake up i'm not you know i i usually don't eat breakfast so i i don't have an appetite and uh so i had an empty stomach i remember getting a little nauseous too. So I was like, okay. And by the way, this is a double blind. So meaning half of the study participants get the psilocybin, the other half get the placebo, which is Benadryl for this clinical trial, I think. So I'm obviously there to get the psilocybin. I don't want to show up just to get a placebo. And so once I felt a little nauseous, the doctor's you know, I didn't throw up or anything, but they said that, you know, well, that's a, that's a side effect of, of the psilocybin. And the the day after I had a headache. So I'm like, okay, I think, and, and this is the thing I thought it would be very obvious if I got it or not. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure that I did get it the first time, but, but the dose was, you know, pretty low for me, I guess. Um, and, and so I, although I did feel like I did get it, it wasn't, it didn't hit me like a bag of bricks. It wasn't that obvious. So what was it like when it, when it came on that first dose? So funny enough, I, I had stopped drinking after that very first dose, even though it wasn't, you know, I saw, and that's the thing, that's the thing, right? So at first, I saw kind of one about 40 minutes in, I have the eye mask on mm-hmm. and I see geometric shapes. Um, and it, it almost looks like a one of those old screensavers on, on your, I think it was on Mac mm-hmm. that would, or you could play it as a slideshow if you had your, your music on. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, the music, it kind of changes shapes and stuff. So that I'm listening to the music and that's what I'm seeing. So I'm like, Oh, okay. I, you know, I think I got it, but I was so desperate at the time and I was so set on getting it, which was total luck. Right. I have no control over that. The doctors don't even know Mm -hmm. um, that I didn't want to jump to conclusion and I didn't want to say, okay, I definitely got it. Um, And but that first session I did, you know, because, and, and also the doctors said, 
even if you get the psilocybin, it might not be a large enough dose for you to feel anything because they, they estimated on your weight. Mm-hmm. And I was probably like 165 pounds at the time. So not too heavy. Um, but I mean, my tolerance for, for alcohol was, was so high. I mean, uh, you're drinking up to 30 drinks a night. It's, it'll get you. Um, so I, I had a pretty high tolerance. Um, and the doctors said, or it could be if it's the Benadryl, the placebo, and if it's a high enough amount of Benadryl, it could get you loopy and you might feel like you're on some sort of, you know, if you've never done psychedelics before, if, mm-hmm. you know, you might feel strange. So that's why I wasn't completely set. They asked me in the questionnaire, how, how confident are you that you, you got the psilocybin? And I said like 95%, I think. So I was fairly confident, but I, I didn't want to touch the hundred percent and jinx myself. And so in addition, you know, in addition to the mild to moderate visuals you got, did, did anything change psychologically for you during that session? Were you thinking about why you were there? Did you feel like you were having a psychological experience that was different from a typical day? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I felt different. Um, and it was, and it did feel like a, this monumental thing was happening. Um, and I remember one of the, the things I saw, the visuals, it was a glass liquor bottle in the middle of the desert, just sitting, sitting there alone on the sand. And then all of a sudden, the glass disintegrates into the sand. And I thought that was pretty obvious and profound symbolism for my alcoholism leaving me. Um, but after that, I mean, I felt it, it was a very reassuring uh, experience for me. The, I mean, the whole session. And, and even though there were some tough parts that would come up and, uh, you know, it, it would it would just be emotions that would come up and feelings of embarrassment and guilt that I put my family and friends through that. Oh, great. You know, I never want to feel that again. I never want to put them through that again um, and have them worry about me. Uh, And it it was, um, it was definitely something I've never felt. And, And a lot of the folks that have participated in these clinical trials say that they rank their psilocybin sessions, you know, right after one of the, as one of the most important experiences of their lives. And it's usually right around, you know, right after the birth of their first child or or a death of a parent that, you know, will always stick with them, that feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I'd agree with that, that it was, up there. Like this is something that I did back in 2015. And I, I still have that sense of, you know, inner peace. I'm never gonna not, not to say I don't lose my temper or any, I'm not a a Zen guy by any means. I'm still a New Yorker. I'm still, you know, yelling at drivers, cutting you (laughs) off or bikes going the wrong way. 
but it, you know, I know that I'm just never going to drink ever again, or even if I do, and that's the thing, even if I do drink, um, I could, I feel confident I could just have one drink because I, it doesn't appeal to me like it used to appeal to me. So the, the point is moot because, you know, I can have a drink without going overboard or without having more than one because it doesn't have that appeal to me, but why even have that? Because it doesn't have an appeal to me, mm-hmm. if that so makes any sense. So you ha- you have not had even oh, one no. drink since then. I have not had a drink, and I not only that, I have not craved a drink. So the thing is, you know, a lot of people come up to me after I did the sixty minutes interview. They've tracked me down, and I'm pretty easy to find online. And so I I talk to strangers every week, whether it's for addiction, whether it's for depression, anxiety, PTSD, they, they, they've heard that this treatment has worked for folks like them and they are desperate to get into a trial. So I help folks get into different trials. I connect them to different researchers and doctors. And it, it's difficult for me to empathize sometimes because this treatment worked so well for me. And I don't, you know, I'm not walking around back in when I was doing the AA days, it's you need to revolve your whole schedule around avoiding alcohol or avoiding triggers that will lead you to drink or avoiding people and places. That's what they say. People pick places and things that you have to change. So you have to change who you hang out with, where you hang out with and the things you do. Um, with me, I still go out to bars and see my friends who you know, some of them should stop drinking. So they're, they're drinking a lot. They're having a good time. And in the past I'd, I'd want, that would, you know, I'd be craving to, to go out and drink with them, but I see it. I hang out with them. It's not appealing to me. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm back by nine or 10 o'clock and they're still out. So this treatment worked so well for me that you know, I, I really don't think of drinking ever. And I mean, my girlfriend went away for uh, a week or two and she left a bottle of wine because she'll have a drink once in a while. And she left a bottle of wine in, in my fridge. And I didn't realize it until, I mean, I knew it was there, but I didn't come to the conclusion of if, you know, before this clinical trial, I would have known that wine was there. I would have as soon as she got into a cab to go to the airport, I would have started, you know, drinking that thing. And then I would have gotten a lot more alcohol after that. Um, so, I mean, for this to not even be appealing to me, and this is from a guy that's tried everything to stop and I could not stop drinking. Um, you know, I have temptation all around here. What would be temptation, but, but it's not anymore. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how well this worked. So you stopped drinking after the first session, but you do two more psilocybin sessions with the therapy in between. Correct. After that first psilocybin session, what were you discussing with the therapist? So this is what they call integration. So preparation are the sessions, the psychotherapy sessions leading up to the session itself. And then do the session um, with psilocybin. And then I met with them, I think the very next day, 
And, you know, and I just walked through what, what I saw um, or what I experienced because it wasn't all visuals. I thought, I thought it would be a lot more visuals, but it was, it's a strange thing. And the doctors said from their past clinical participants, many of the participants, if not all, found it very difficult to put in into words what they experienced. And my job at the time was to do that. I was a journalist, Mm -hmm. right? So I thought that was the dumbest thing I heard until I did it. And it is explaining the ineffable where, you know, it, it, one is we haven't experienced this before. So we don't know, we don't have any reference points. How do you describe something that you never experienced and you might never experience again? Um, And two, there are just simply no words in the English language that can describe such thing. Um, So I would, I told the doctors, I was like, you know, I thought, I, I told them about the glass bottle. I told them about, you know, I had a friend that um, he died tragically and, but we weren't on good terms when he died. And even after he died, I, I still had some animosity towards him and it was a, a complicated relationship. And I kind of, you know, I, he popped up out of nowhere. I mean, it's all you're in your subconscious too. That's the thing, mm-hmm. right? Things come up, you know, mainly for a reason. Sometimes they just come up innocuously and um, just random things pop up that don't really mean anything. Uh, but everything that comes up is in your mind. It's, mm-hmm. it's in your thoughts and, and you're creating, you know, mm-hmm. thoughts. Um, so I told them about that. I told them, you know, what else just, and, and I was still kind of shell shocked from it because I, I'd never done this before. Um, and I've never experienced anything like it. And I was still trying to piece together what had happened. So they helped me do that. And I would explain, you know, what happened or what I saw or what I felt. And they said, okay, what do you think that means? Do you think it means this? And do you think it means that? Or how do you think you're going to, you know, do you incorporate this into your, your life going forward? Or do you think any changes are going to come of this or what changes would you like to see? So stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's obviously the most important part, because this isn't a magic pill where you just take it and then you're, you're cured. Um, I consider myself cured. I, I, and, and the doctors are very cautious and that's why I respect them because they're not self promoters. Um, they're not, you know, snake oil salesmen. Uh, they're very concerned with the research. They're, they're, you know, concerned with the data. That's all that they want to revert to. Um, and, and look into. So they don't want to tell you that you're cured. They don't want to tell you that, you know, uh, or this is going to cure you or this is, you know, mm-hmm. but for me, in my instance, this cured my alcoholism. I mean, I, I did this 
and it took away all my cravings. And this is years later now. This was 2015. Totally done. So it sounds like the first experience, was it had a visual component, but it wasn't as visually centered around seeing things as you may have thought it would be going in. Is it fair to say that it was more it was more of a cognitive hallucination, like your mental thought patterns were just behaving differently than they do normally, rather than overtly seeing things? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, and also what this let me do, because alcoholism and, and addiction mainly is a subjective disease where the addict or the alcoholic makes excuses and justifies their drinking or doing drugs. So um, what this let me do was it let me look at my drinking objectively and it let me see that I'm actually hurting the people around me because they care so much about me and they're, they're watching me drink myself to death basically. And it's like a bad accident in slow motion. Um, and before that, I always thought that I was just hurting myself because I'm the one drinking. I'm not, and I'm not physically hurting anyone. So I'm just drinking and it's doing damage to my body. Um, but that wasn't the case. I was probably doing more damage to the people around me because they had to watch this with sober eyes. So it changed your perspective on what was going on in that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How much, and how much time goes between the first dose and the second dose? Probably a few weeks, mm -hmm. maybe a little longer, anywhere and, from a month or two. And that dose was higher? So that they bumped me up higher because I didn't, I didn't really, I, I felt it. I was like, I, I'm pretty sure I got it, but you know, you got to send me to the moon on the next one. So, <laughs> so they bumped it up, I think to 25 milligrams. And, and that would, I mean, I had known pretty soon that, that I got the psilocybin. I was like, okay. Meaning that that dose was more obvious, like you felt it more strongly. Oh yeah, absolutely. How was it? Um, can you describe it for us? And especially anyways, it was different or stronger in the subjective effects? Sure. It, it was just more intense. Um, so it was almost like I was on a fast roller coaster or something and, or, or free falling. Um, and I, it was, it was, everything was just more intense and even, you know, the uncomfortable. So what they call bad trips, quote unquote, bad trips. First of all, a lot of these bad trips are the most rewarding. So you need to, and the doctor, thank God the doctors told me this. They said, if you come, you know, face any uncomfortable situations and you're scared or uncomfortable and you don't, you know, from our experience, the folks who see that through and they don't try to run away from these feelings and emotions, and if you stick through it and see it out until the end, that's much more rewarding. And I agree with that 100%. So 
even though the this session was more intense, there were more high points and I felt great on a lot of it, but also a lot more challenging moments where I didn't want to, you know, go through it. I remember um, I had to take a bathroom break. They had us drinking a lot of water before the, the drug test. So that caught up with me. I, wa- I wanted to go take a bathroom break. And I thought, and, and I was going through a difficult situation. Um, and I, I thought about, okay, maybe I could just cop out here and take the easy way out and just say, I need to go to the bathroom. And then maybe when I come back, it'll be better. And then I remember what they said saying, you know, this is more rewarding if you go through it. So I stuck it out and, and I'm happy I did because after, you know, when, when the psilocybin wears off, um, you just feel, at least I felt going through this challenging thing that I accomplished something. I was like, that was tough. And I didn't think I could do it, but I did. And I won. So after that, I felt confident. I felt reassured. And it was also very, a very humbling experience. So you, you feel confident, but at the same time, it's a humbling experience. Um, meaning that, you know, I realized how insignificant not only, you know, my actions are, but I am as well. Uh, you know, as big an ego someone could have, the reality is, you know, we're in the scheme of things, we're with all the problems going on in the world, we're pretty insignificant. And and your problems, you know, as bad as they can be, hopefully they're temporary and in the scheme of things, they're not as bad as, as, you know, we're going through and and we think they are at the time. Mm -hmm. And was the second experience, was it also not as overtly visual as you would have thought prior to your psilocybin experiences? Yeah, these weren't, I, so I don't know if it's the way I interact with, with psilocybin, but it's not as visual as I saw in the movies or my friends would explain it to me or Mm -hmm. things I would read. Um, You know, I thought it would be like an augmented reality where I'm walking around. And, and the thing is that's, it it could be, but I didn't walk around. Right. I'm not Mm -hmm. outside walking around with, I have an eye mask on the whole time. Okay. So, so I think that's also, why it wasn't as visual as I thought it would be. Um, but it was mainly, it was mainly a emo- very strange. It was mainly just emotions that were really, and different feelings and different, you know, happy, sad, you know, uh, anger and relief. And so a lot of, it, it was like a roller coaster of emotion, if that makes any sense. And so you kept your, blindfold on the entire time the music was playing the entire time and then can you talk about the music a little bit more and whether or not did you actually interact or speak to the people in the room who are watching you or was it mostly was it mostly just a solo trip it was so i i went in here 
because this is a research study. So I looked at myself as a, you know, human research subject. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, during one of these sessions, probably all of them, I felt like I was almost like an astronaut reporting back to NASA on like what I was seeing and what I was experiencing because I knew that they were curious to know, but and and respect to them, they held that curiosity in. So they didn't they didn't want to ask me any questions. They didn't want to interfere with me at all. They just wanted, you know, me to interact with the psilocybin and the music and and the surrounding. Um, so they didn't want to. They were there if I needed any assistance, which lucky you know, luckily enough, I didn't throughout any of it. Um, and. And I remember I was telling them, I was like, okay, this feels weird. This is, and I kept saying, this is wacky. I'm like, okay, this is just wacky guys. And I always knew where I was. I always knew I was at Bellevue hospital with NYU Langone doctors. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to report back to them, um, what I was seeing and feeling. And they were like, okay, John, just, you know, tell us tomorrow try to remember it, try to focus on, on what you're doing. And, and you can tell us about it all tomorrow. <laughs> and so I did. Um, but yeah, no, it was a, a very strange uh, thing. And the music mainly, you know, classical music and, and some tribal stuff with some, you know, uh, like the wind pipes and, one of those like it, it it's one of those instruments that has the beads in it i think that it sounds it mimics rainfall oh almost, yeah 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 right so stuff like that and and you know i remember it went from classical to one of those instruments and i felt like i was in the middle of a jungle all of a sudden and you know i saw a tiger walking by but it you know i wasn't scared of it and i kind of you know face death and then i i remember having an actual death experience too which ironically was the most peaceful part of the psilocybin session hmm. and i remember thinking because the the clinical trial a few years prior to the one i participated in the patient's it was for anxiety and it, the patients were terminally ill cancer patients. And so they must've had, you know, a bunch of anxiety like anyone would have after that diagnosis. And I just remember after that, having that death experience, I just remember thinking, I hope all of those patients felt the same way that I did and, and got to experience that too because I felt you know, much more at ease with death. Um, and it was a very strange experience. And, and, um, yeah, I, I just remember, you know, that I think that was my second session. When you say you had a death experience, what kind of imagery was there? Did you, did you actually think it was a death experience or did you recognize it as symbolism of some kind? It, you know, no, I thought it was a death experience. And I, I saw myself from a bird's eye view, almost like an out of body experience. So I saw myself in real time 
it felt like um, that I was watching myself lie down on the couch at Bellevue Hospital. And um, and it was like a ceremonial day. It was very strange. It was a, like a, almost a sacrifice of some sort where um, I just I got stabbed in the neck with a sword, <laughs> which seems like a painful way to go. But and a slow death. But I, I you know, it wasn't I, I was scary. watching. Sorry, it, it wasn't scary at all, though. It was it sounds no. like it was actually a reassuring. It was peaceful. And I, I thought that was another, you know, piece of symbolism that my addiction was leaving me or my, you know, my old self was, was leaving me that I can leave this stuff that that's dead, right? That part of me died and I could move on to the next thing now. Um, and that's, that's what I related that to. I said, okay, this is, this is obvious to me. This is a part of me, my past leaving me. And, and dying off and the, and the part I don't want to carry on to the future with me, which is a good thing. Hmm. So you gave up drinking after the first dose a few weeks go by. You're still not drinking that whole time. You have the second dose. Is anything else in your life feeling different in between these two sessions? Are you sleeping differently? Are you having different kinds of dreams? What's, what's maybe different in your life besides the fact that you're simply not drinking alcohol? You know, I wasn't as focused on things that I had no control over anymore. And that's mm-hmm. something that they actually teach you in AA. Don't, don't worry about the things you don't have control over. Worry about the things you do have control over and, and make sure, you know, you do them as well as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is interesting because there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, similarities between AA and the psychedelic assisted therapy. And one of the co-founders of AA, Bill W actually did LSD and wanted to incorporate LSD in their program. Hmm. But, um, the other folks in AA didn't want anything to do with that. Uh, but, um, you know, so that, that was a big thing that I was focused on myself. I wasn't worried about what anyone else was thinking, what anyone else was doing. Um, I was just focused at work. I was focused on myself. How can I be better? You know, how, how can I improve myself and how can I be better tomorrow than I was yesterday? Um, and today than I was yesterday. And having that calmness in me, it it let me, you know, slow things down and just, and, and, uh, lock in to different things that I I was trying to accomplish. So, uh, a lot of folks I hear, they have an afterglow after they experience a psychedelic session. And I think I, I felt that for a week or two, maybe, and I would listen to you know, music, walking to the subway, going to work. And I was like, who, who would have known Willie Nelson had such a, you know, great voice. (laughs) Um, And I've been listening to him my whole life, but it was like, I started appreciating, you know, these things that I never really consciously knew existed, which was weird too. And, and with my relationships as well. So that, that's another thing. I, what this helped me do was it, 
uh, you know, help me set my priorities. And I wasn't wasting time on insignificant tasks and things that weren't going anywhere. And I got to focus more of my time, efforts, and resources to the things that did matter to me. So it helped me realign my priorities, which was, uh, you know, really important. So in between the second and the third dose, did you know this whole time that you were potentially going to do three doses? Mm -hmm. So the, the first two are the double blind. So if you got the psilocybin the first time, you're going to get the psilocybin the second time. If you got the placebo the first time, you're getting the placebo the second time. The third time, they it's it's 100% psilocybin. So they wanted to give the chance to the folks in the placebo group mm-hmm. a, a chance to at least try this once. And because, you know, the most part, people don't into this study have a life-threatening disease of, yep. of addiction. So they want to give someone, you know, at least a chance of hope to, to get this um, this experience at least one time. So yeah, they, they said you could get, you know, one to three times and I I got all three in between the second and the third dose. You've done these two experiences going into the third one. Are you looking forward to it now? The third time, are you still feeling anxious going into it? Um, is the third experience different as you're going into it? It's different just because I, I knew what to expect and I knew how to handle it now. Mm-hmm. So I, I was eager to do this, um, which is strange because I don't, after I left the study, I don't want to do this again. I'm happy and I'm forever grateful. This saved my life. I'm forever grateful that I got to do it, but I'm not thinking about doing another psilocybin session. I don't, I don't want to go to you know the Netherlands or South America and, and do this again. I'm totally fine. I got, you know, out of it exactly, if not more what I wanted to get out of this. Um, so going into the third session, I was excited. And, and by then I already knew that I wasn't going to drink for the rest of my life. But by that time, that's how fast it worked for me, that I was completely confident that I'm never going to have the urge to drink. And you know, at that time I had some, uh, stress at work that I wanted to help manage. So I was like, let me try to do this for that. Then, you know, let me try to, uh, what I called was housekeeping, just, you know, tidy things up and, and focus on things, tweak things that, that I wanted to work at and handle my stress better. Um, and, uh, so it was, I mean, that, that's really how well the psilocybin worked. And, and also that's how I was terrified going into this, but by the third session, I knew what to expect and it wasn't easy by any means, but I wasn't afraid of it as I was going into the first session. Mm-hmm. And was the dose on the third one higher than the second one or the same as the second one? You know, I think they gave me the same of 25 milligrams. Mm-hmm. As one. And can you speak a little bit more about the interaction between the psilocybin experiences and the therapy sessions happening in between? Do you feel like that's a a key piece of this? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, The doctors were were some of the best 
that I've had access to, and I credit them with with my success. Um, th- you know, that's the difference between folks doing this and going to a Grateful Dead cover band, right, and and hallucinating, or doing this and and doing it through a therapeutic way. Um, you know, the doctors, the therapists there, the psychiatrists, they, they need to be good and good enough to, to get you through to the other side, um, and help you incorporate what, what emotions and what, what things are coming up because they're there for a reason. So if they help you, you know, play detective and kind of unwrap everything and, and help you figure it out. Um, it's, it's a huge help to, to get a successful experience through that. So I credit the, the therapy, the psychotherapy, um, with, uh, with that too. I couldn't just take this and, and sit in a room alone. Um, I needed to do, you know, talk to the doctors before and talk to the doctors after and figure out, okay, what are we going to work on? How am I going to do this? And what am I going to take out of this? And so it sounds like you don't feel like it's worn off at all. You, you haven't had a drink in what, approximately six years now? Yeah, about. And no, it hasn't. Um, and, and if anything, which is strange, and I've heard this with other study participants um, that if anything, this gets stronger and better over time where more, you know, most med- medications wear off over time with me, this, you know, was reinforced more and more over time where, I mean, I was talking to, to a guy who's got about 35, 36 years sober, I think. And, but he's doing AA and he's been doing AA for decades. And he said, it, it sound when I explained where I am with this, he said, it took me about 25 years to get to where you are now. And I was shocked. Um, and, and he's a big believer in this too. Um, and, you know, I just, I felt this was such a shortcut and I almost, it was like a cheat code that I plugged into a video game because this is, it worked so well, you know, I thought it, it would be made up. If you told me this before I entered the study, I, you know, I thought it would be a fantasy land. Mm-hmm. Have you interacted at all with other participants in the same study? Yeah, I have. Um, and I think most of them who got the psilocybin stop drinking completely or significantly reduce their drinking. So when I mentioned that I feel like I could have a drink and just stop, a lot of these people do. Um, so I guess they feel the same way as, as I do. I just don't do it. Um, and they say, you know, at Thanksgiving, I saw my family and uh, I had a glass of wine for the first time and I just, I didn't even finish it. And I'm like, and everyone was shocked. And I was like, you know, if I knew that going in, maybe I would have done that because I love drinking so much that it was so hard to give it up completely. And I knew I needed to, 
But going into the study, if I knew that I could have that as an option, that I could drink normally and I could have one or two drinks and I and not get out of control, um, I you know I probably would have picked that route. But I just I was like you know I got to stop completely, and that was the mindset and intention I went in. Did anyone in the study that you talked to have it not really work for them? Yes, but um, not anything that no one left the study in worse shape that they entered it with. So, and, and only, you know, people that net that got the placebo, frankly, um, not the ones that got the psilocybin. So does that even count? So, so with these people, they got the placebo in the first two, but they still got psilocybin in the last one. Yeah. I see. And, and so even though I stopped drinking after my very first session, I, I am very grateful that I got two more sessions after that, mm-hmm. because that really, the first session kind of laid the foundation for me. And then the second and third ones, I got to build on, on top of that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the progress came from the second and third ones as well to mm-hmm. really reinforce that change. And have you continued therapy or AA since the NYU study? No, I haven't. So I explain this to people like th- this worked for me like an antibiotic. I went in to the clinical trial. I did the psilocybin session and the psychotherapy and I left and I was totally cured. I never, I didn't have to go to, you know, see a doctor. Um, I never had to go see a therapist after and since I never went to AA meeting. Um, because I just, I didn't need any of that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I could go and live my life now. I'm not thinking about drinking anymore. I mean, it's, it's really miraculous what, what, how this works and how well this works. Mm-hmm. What, um, you know, given everything that you've gone through with this, what's your, it's pretty clear what your perspective on, on this is in terms of the therapeutic applications. What's your therapeutic about psilocybin recreationally do you think that it is something that should be legalized and sold in a recreational setting or should this be reserved for therapeutic uses you know i think if you look at the data alcohol and cigarettes kill more people than uh psychedelics that being said i don't think psychedelics are for any everyone um i think you need to do these in safe places Um, and you know, with, with such a stigma about them, unfortunately, I mean, I have friends that I grew up with that, that, you know, do this recreationally and they're fine and they're, you know, (laughs) they're great. Um, and they, they do this in a safe way. I mean, they don't, I don't think they're drug addicts. I don't think they have a problem. They do it. I don't know, maybe once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think with the stigma, with the scrutiny and the fact that this actually, this isn't like cannabis and medical marijuana. This is, I mean, with, with that, you know, that's helped some quality of life improvements, right? Psilocybin can save lives. It saved my life 
it, I know a ton of people that it saved their lives. And I think the way to get to, to help this save more lives and make this accessible to everyone that needs it. Um, I think the way to do that is, is through the research because a lot of people are just, you know, the risk of this being politicized again, mm-hmm. like it was in the 1970s, because if you remember, they've been doing this research since in the 1950s and 1960s, and it had just as good results. And it was saving lives. It was curing alcoholics. Um, but then it got politicized with the counterculture in the mm-hmm. 70s. And it, you know, all of that promising life-saving research had to come to a sudden halt. So I think, you know, to answer your question, I think the route to get this approved and, and the fastest way to get this, make this accessible to people um, is, is through the research itself. Mm-hmm. What have you been working on since completing the study? I know that you're running a nonprofit that you mentioned. So can you tell people about that and, and what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I went into the study so desperate and I made a deal with God and I'm not really a religious person, but I was just so desperate at the time. I said, if you get me out of this, if this works for me, I'm going to do everything I can to help make this accessible to other people. Cause personally, I, I had a lot of friends die from drugs and alcohol. Um, and you know, I, I had to talk to their parents. I still talk to their parents and it's gotta be one of the worst, if not the worst feeling in the world, having to, to bury your child. Um, and so I was probably going to end up that way too. And luckily enough, I didn't. Um, so it ended up working for me and, uh, I was helping the doctors behind the scene because, so there's no, government grants here, right? This is a schedule one drug. The vast majority of this research comes from private funding. Hmm. So philanthropists, foundations, right? So I was helping the doctors raise some money. And then they asked me to do a 60 minutes interview with Anderson Cooper. And I really did not want to do that and go public with this. I was, you know, Michael Pollan interviewed me for his book Mm -hmm. and uh, he said, "What na- you want me to use a real name or you want me to use an alias? It's alias. I didn't go public with this. And then, you know, uh, I ended up doing the interview. And after I went public with this, a lot of people reached out to me. How do I get into these clinical trials? How do I get my kid in? How do I get my wife in? You know, and it, I was almost heartbroken. So I said, okay, I might as well just own this now and and do as much as I can. So we launched the nonprofit of 501c3 to advance this research. So we're educating stakeholders um, and showing people that this is a legitimate medical treatment. And not only that, it's safe and it's been yielding the best results compared to anything else that's available to us now. Um, And I know that firsthand. Um, So that's what we're doing. We're fundraising to fund more of these clinical trials and ultimately get this FDA approved so people can do this without doing it underground and with the risk of getting arrested or the risk of doing it unsafely. Um, and that, that's, you know, our ultimate goal. 
And, and what's the name of your nonprofit? Where can people find more information? It's, uh, you know, back to my deal with God, Apollo Pact. Apollo's the God of light. And uh, the pact is our promise to, to do what we can to make this accessible to people. So Apollo Pact, P-A-C-T dot org. And if you want to reach out to me and, and learn more, my email is john, J-O-N, at apollopact.org. And so how closely are you following the ongoing research in this area? Is there anything that's particularly exciting to you with psilocybin? You know, I'm, I'm eager to see uh, the doctors at NYU Langone publish the study that I was lucky enough to be a part of. Um, so they're hopefully, you know, coming to an end with that. And I would love to see the overall results of that. Um, I hear they're, you know, they're really good and they're going to be getting a lot of attention um, in a good way with their results. So that's, you know, the main thing I'm looking at. Um, I like how, you know, Mass General and Harvard, they, they've launched their psychedelic center, uh, Berkeley, I think with the help of Michael Pollan. Um, there's a researcher, Robin Cart. Carhart Harris uh, mm-hmm. from, from the UK. I think he went over to San Francisco. So there are a lot of moving parts with this research, which is pretty exciting. And I think we're at the tipping point where, you know, the, the evidence and the science and the data is just undeniable. And, and, you know, you see the New York Times writing stories, the Wall Street Journal, right? The 60 minute segment. Um, this is getting into mainstream media. So that just the overall research is, is exciting to me. Any final thoughts about your experience or about this general area that you want to leave people with or point people to? You know, with we were in the middle of a mental health crisis before the pandemic and an mm-hmm. opioid epidemic, right? Um the opioid epidemic got way worse with 85,000 deaths over the past 12 months. It's probably going to be north of 100,000. Um, and the mental health crisis was, was awful going into this pandemic. And all the pandemic did was exacerbate it. Um, the silver lining here, I think, you know, uh, we should be optimistic because the silver lining here is that we do have an answer for the majority of people suffering out there. And the way to do that is to get this approved, get, make this, you know, accessible to people, continue to fund research and, and get these doctors, the resources they need to, to advance the research, but also save lives. That's the bottom line. This will save millions of lives. It has the potential to. Well, John, thanks for your time. This is a very fascinating area and, and your story is very powerful. So I appreciate you sharing it in you know the, the level of detail that you have. Sure thing. Well, thanks again for having me. And it was great speaking with you on that. All right. Have a good day, John. Thanks. You too. Take care. 